Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Hi everyone, if you aren't at the IPAN conference for peace at the MUA offices in Ireland Street, West Melbourne, but listening to Solidarity Breakfast Live, there is always tomorrow, Sunday the 10th, to catch up on the issues of peace, war and Australian involvement. For all of us here, we have a thoroughly interesting program, if I do say so myself. And of course, I'm Annie, and you're on Solidarity Breakfast, 3CR's Saturday morning breakfast show, a few morsels of politics with your Wheaties. Uh, On August the 28th, that's a few Mondays ago, there was a launch by Concerned Australians, that's what the organisation's called, Concerned Australians, of a statement calling for the end of the Northern Territory intervention. Now, it's the 10th year of the Northern Territory intervention, and uh, the evidence is in, it is a bad thing, and 200 eminent Australians have put their names to the statement calling for the end of the Northern Territory intervention. The Northern Territory intervention is expected to go on for another five years and First Australian Nations people are crying out for a stop to this military-style disenfranchisement of their people. I went to the launch and Gillian Triggs, the former president of the Human Rights Commission, made the first speech. Now, Gillian Triggs was a beacon in the dim and brutal Liberal National Party landscape for human rights in this country over the last few years. This is why this federal government attacked her and her report so viciously. The people at the launch of the eminent Australians against the Northern Territory intervention gave Ms Triggs a spontaneous, heartfelt ovation. So first up, we're going to hear from Gillian Triggs. And uh, then we're going to hear from an Indigenous voice, a First Nations voice, that's Rosalind Kurno-Monks who was there with a couple of other First Nations people appealing to be heard about the destructive nature of the NT intervention. Later on in the program, we're going to hear from Kevin. This is the week that was. We're also going to go and listen to... Bruce Pascoe, who's put out a book called Dark Emu. It may have already uh, reached your horizons. It's quite an influential book. It's uh, causing a few earthquakes around the place regarding uh, the misrepresentation of First Nation peoples 
uh, way of living, way of uh, agriculture in the Australian continent before the Europeans arrived. Anyway, he was here at Fitzroy uh, Town Hall uh, doing um, a talk about uh, dark emu and about a couple of other things as well. We're going to uh, listen to some of the things he says. It's a long talk, so we might actually revisit it in other programs because uh, we're going to hear the first part of the talk. Anyway... Let's uh, hear an important announcement before we move on to hear from uh, Gillian Triggs. Hello? Listen, I had a great idea. Male chauvinist pig versus hairy-legged feminist. You're still a feminist, right? I'm a tennis player who happens to be a woman. The battle you've all been waiting to see. The battle of the sexes. You want to see it, right? Then get along and support 3CR at the Palace Woodcast Cinemas, 89 High Street, Northcote, on Thursday, October 5th, from 6.30pm, for a screening of Battle of the Sexes. You're offering the men's winner eight times what you're offering the women's winner. The men are simply more exciting to watch. It's just biology. (laughs) The story of the infamous tennis match between Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs. Tickets are $25 and $20 concession. You can purchase online at 3cr.org.au direct from the station at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, or by phoning 9419 8377 during business hours. All funds raised go to Keeping 3CR on air. Battle of the Sexes screening, Thursday, October the 5th from 6.30pm. Does she have the nerve? Call Barbie. Time it's on. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and as I promised, we're going to first up on the program hear from Gillian Triggs. Uh, she's now a left the uh, role of President of the Human Rights Commission. Uh, She was part of the launch of the eminent Australian statement against the Northern Territory intervention. We'll go straight ahead and hear from Gillian Trigg. Well, it's now 10 years since the enactment of the Northern Territory Emergency Response Act, the otherwise, otherwise known as the intervention, in 2007. While it was nominally designed to protect children, It's become a chilling act of political cynicism and opportunism that exemplifies many features of national governments over the last few years. An overreach of executive and government decision-making, a failure of Parliament, a chronic failure to consult Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders about matters that deeply affect them, and the manipulation of truth in what has become almost normal in a post-truth era. As an international lawyer, My principal's concerns have been that the Act and its extension by the Stronger Futures Act uh, to the year 2022 uh, breach the Racial Discrimination Act, the Convention on the Rights of the Child and the important Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Um, The failure uh, to abide by those international obligations and particularly to give effect to most of those obligations in our Australian domestic law are fundamental problems that explain in a way how it is that governments have been able to get away with this intervention legislation and the Stronger Futures uh, law that followed it. But why was the intervention legislation passed in the first place? Earlier reports of neglect and abuse of children had of course long been available. There was nothing particularly surprising about it but it attracted very little political or media attention. 
the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody in 1996 that explained a problem that's been magnified many times since, particularly the Ms. Duke case not so long ago, two or three years ago, was followed by the report of the Australian Human Rights Commission um, in 1997, the Bringing Them Home report. Um, it might be perhaps worth remembering uh, that um, uh, Justice uh, Ronald Wilson was the uh, president of the Australian Human Rights Commission at that time and conducted that hearing. The Bringing Them Home report, effectively relating to the stolen children, is one of them, it is the most reported report uh, ever produced by the Australian Human Rights Commission. But it's interesting that uh, Sir Ronald Wilson was probably well known at the time as a black letter law, pretty much a straight conservative lawyer uh, when he left the High Court. Uh, by the time he'd finished at the Australian Human Rights Commission, he was saying that the, uh, to take children from their Aboriginal parents in the way that occurred uh, was a form of genocide. Now, this was a radicalised judge. Quite extraordinary that he should move uh, from the original position um, as a conservative lawyer to, to this uh, really quite strong statement for which he was much criticised um, many more than 20 years ago now. Well... The findings of these reports were confirmed by the Little Children as Sacred Report in June 2007 by the Northern Territory Government's Board of Inquiry into the Protection of Aboriginal Children from Sexual Abuse. It was chaired by Pat Anderson and by Rex Wild QC uh, and it, it considered the abuse and ne neglect of Aboriginal children in the Northern Territory. But by contrast with earlier reports and making the critical difference was the discussion of the Little Children a Sacred Report on the ABC's Late Line programme by Tony Jones. And this programme achieved what all those reports were unable to do. You have visual images, you have uh, a narrative uh, with pictures that the public can relate to. And it was that that made, or was, the final stimulant to, uh, to, to taking some action by the then uh, Howard government. Uh, just as an aside, of course, it's very interesting that it's exactly the same phenomenon with regard to the detention of Aboriginal children and juveniles in detention. That it takes that iconic and horrific photograph of, of a young uh, Indigenous boy in a steel restraint uh, and hooded. Uh, and uh, CCTV footage of the treatment of these children to uh, spark the current Royal Commission into the detention of Aboriginal children in the Northern Territory. Um, it's a fact of life. Uh, we had reported, and I particularly had reported, on the use of steel restraints 16 times in relation to one uh, young man. It was completely ignored, and the report was tabled in Parliament with the words, I table this report. Well, it sunk without trace until we see the CCTV footage on the Four Corners programme. So uh, we have a lot to thank the media, but it's a very much a recognition of how you bring these issues to public attention. Uh, will very often be through uh, CCTV footage or television programmes that bring these matters to attention. Uh, the uh, evidence-based reports uh, can often be ignored. We now saw then that that programme uh, achieved what formal reports couldn't do, it exposed the high level of sexual abuse of children uh, in Aboriginal communities. The public exposure was effective in galvanising the government into extraordinary action. Extraordinary, because over a 48-hour uh, weekend and without consultation at all with the Indigenous communities of the Northern Territory, a new regime was devised for intervention. It was truly exceptional um, and it allowed the government to control community living, housing, employment and local government 
and suspended the operation of the Racial Discrimination Act, an extraordinary thing to have done uh, in contemporary Australia to suspend one of the most important pieces of human rights legislation Australia has ever passed. The Act did not implement the primary recommendation of the Little Children of Sacred Report that had recommended that the Commonwealth and the Northern Territory governments establish immediately a collaborative partnership with an MOU to address the protection of Aboriginal children. It's critical that both governments should commit to genuine consultation with Aboriginal people in designing initiatives for Aboriginal communities. That recommendation, fundamentals of the Little Children of Sacred Report, was completely ignored. The intervention legislation ultimately drafted used the report and the outrage generated by the ABC documentary as camouflage for wider reforms pursued by the Howard government um, and uh, failed to comply with some of the most fundamental international agreements. Uniformly, I think, at least among informed commentators and certainly by those affected, uh, the Northern Territory uh, intervention law led ultimately to a disempowerment of Aboriginal peoples and a loss of dignity and respect. As you know, it established a welfare payment management scheme in respect to 50% of income, now the basics card. It ended permit controls over access to Aboriginal lands, giving governments access, and compulsorily controlled uh, townships under five-year leases. The Act abolished the government-funded community development employment project that led to young people moving elsewhere for work, and disempowered local organisations, replacing them with new government officials. It placed blanket bans on alcohol and pornography and prevented judges from considering common law principles and cultural practices when setting bail or sentences. The word child was only rarely used in the 500-page piece of legislation. Let me give you an example of why local community consultation is so important. A year or so ago, Mick Gooder and I visited... Uh, the Eva Valley and Beswick Community Centres, and Mick showed me two signs. One had been in the local language as a community-agreed ban on alcohol and had been respected and successful for some time. The other was the so-called blue sign in English. This was much resented, and that blue sign was credited with having ultimately led to so much disaffection within the community that alcohol was reintroduced. Well, of course, Senator Scullion has conceded that it would have been far better to act with the full compliance of the community, and yes, we could have done better. In short, the intervention imposed from the top, and little effort was made to consult the communities um, of the Northern Territory. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and at the moment we're listening to the first speech that was given at the launch of the eminent Australian's statement Uh, against the Northern Territory intervention. Uh, It's been going on for 10 years. Uh, It's expected to go for another five. Uh, It's got uh, uh, an incredibly destructive uh, aspect to it it, for the local communities. And uh, the uh, 200 names that were put onto this list uh, can be found at uh, the Concerned Australians website. I'm going to have that link for you on the podcast uh, page so you'll be able to follow it through. But if you want to just do it yourself, go to concernedaustralians.org.au. We'll hear the rest of what Gillian Trigg had to say. The perspective that I found particularly shocking and of which I admit to have been largely unaware at the time 
was that of a military invasion. The intervention campaign used military language, calling it a five-year emergency phase leading to normalisation. Sounds a bit like the Vietnam War. Indigenous families, on learning the news of the intervention, feared the invasion by 600 army and federal police of 73 Northern Territory remote communities, officials who had powers at that time to enter Aboriginal homes. And there's a wonderful description by an Aboriginal man, Ali Ackerman, who describes this invasion in a rather poetic form. He said, John Howard, he came with the army. We get real frightened true. Thought he was going to take the kids away, just like Jama and Nana been tell us. I run my kids into the sand hills and set, sat. But they was all just lying, changing their words all the time, wanting meeting today and tomorrow. Wife came home crying, says the money in quarantine. We was happy not drinking and fighting. You only get meat and bread now, just like the mission days. Well, with that background, what's been achieved in ten years? Well, there's some facts out there. The Menzies School of Health report to the Royal Commission into the protection and detention of children in the Northern Territory found that the intervention had not made any positive difference. A 2014 reported that the Basics Card has had no significant change relative to the objectives of the intervention legislation. It has not changed behaviour, but has had negative impacts of disrespect and disempowerment. School attendance has dropped over this period. No progress has been made on overcrowded housing. Assault and sexual assault convictions are about the same as they were before the intervention. Domestic violence has significantly increased. Incarceration of juveniles is now at world record heights. No other country in the world has the level of Indigenous incarceration that Australia has. Uh, and in the Northern Territory, 96% of juveniles incarcerated are Indigenous. We've had a 500% in Indigenous youth suicides since 2000, or since the years 2007 to 11. Extraordinary uh, statistical evidence. And we've had a 69% increase in out-of-home care of Indigenous children. Well, the disturbing trend over the last few years has been what I believe to be an overreach of executive government discretion and a willingness to reject and avoid the rule of law. One of the most important and concerning aspects from my point of view was the suspension of the Race Discrimination Act. Um, the, the Act has had overwhelming community support throughout Australia, and it's underpinned the multicultural society that we're so proud of. Uh, it's heartening, of course, that the multicultural community stood up for attempts to amend the Racial Discrimination Act and Section 18C uh, just recently. Uh, but it's a tragedy uh, that a government could get away with suspending that legislation, uh, only to reintroduce it some years later, but in a way that actually allowed the earlier damning provisions to uh, effectively continue, and where the effects of the uh, intervention legislation continues to be racially discriminatory in its impact, and of course is a relevant consideration. Well, the next very brief point that I want to make before finishing is the, is the distortion of truth and propaganda in relation to the intervention. Several authors have commented on the big lies, and one such distortion, that paedophile rings operate in Indigenous communities, was later categorically rejected by no other than the Australian Crimes Commission. A second damaging distortion has been that the Indigenous population of the Northern Territory was exceptionally likely to abuse Aboriginal children. But the Australian Institute of Family Studies and the current work of the Royal Commission into institutional responses to child sexual abuse 
demonstrate that neglect and abuse of children is a nationwide phenomenon. In fact, an incidence of abuse higher in other states than the Northern Territory. In an opinion piece today, the former Prime Minister, Mr Abbott, argues in favour of the extension of trials for the basic cards in Kununurra and other places in East Kimberley and in South Australia's Seduna. While it might have been wise to await the outcome of these trials before passing judgment, Mr Abbott says that the results of the basic card are impressive and that violence in those communities has almost disappeared. He even suggests that quarantining welfare payments can reduce indigenous suicides and domestic violence and protect women from assaults. But the evidence on the ground is to the contrary. There are significant problems with the card that's much disliked by those forced to use it and provides yet another government tool of disempowerment. The abuse of alcohol is, of course, a community problem throughout Australia, but it's wrong and illegal as a matter of international law to penalise Aboriginal Australians where the impact of the basics card is racially discriminatory. The dilemma in responding to distortions of fact is that once a falsity is asserted, it lodges in the public mind. Despite incontrovertible evidence to the contrary, the falsehood is exceptionally hard to dislodge and becomes a form of truth. Of course, little children are sacred, and of course we must do what we can as a nation to stop their neglect and abuse. But we should do so consistently with human rights. To juxtapose human rights versus child protection is a false binary. Australians can both protect our vulnerable children and respect the fundamental rights of our First Nations peoples to dignity, meaningful consultation and consent to laws that affect their lives. The following is a statement from Yonyu Makaduni in October 2013 and he expresses the anger of many within the Indigenous community. We want self-determination, we want democracy. We want the power of the people of Arnhem Land and all Aboriginal communities to be recognised and our rights respected. We will not tolerate this bullying and it, and it is no way to treat human rights. We demand an apology from the Australian Government. Well, perhaps I can conclude with the, uh, with the words of a report from the Commission to Parliament, work with us, not for us, a powerful reason why even good faith measures to address the neglect and abuse of children and Aboriginal children continue to fail is the lack of meaningful engagement with Indigenous communities. The consequence of inadequate consultation is the failure of the Intervention and the Stronger Futures Act, despite their significant financial cost. The evidence is that neither programme can claim any significant positive results. All this at the human cost of breaching fundamental rights, demeaning and stereotyping our First Nations peoples, and impeding their right to self-determination. Today, we have a national discussion about proposals for constitutional recognition of our First Peoples and the establishment of an advisory body within the Constitution. I support these proposals, especially as they've been recommended after a full consultation with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. However, I do remain concerned that neither the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples nor the relevant parts of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, calling for respect for Aboriginal cultures, nor the Convention on the Rights of the Child, are direct parts of Australian law. They cannot be enforced by our courts. I now believe that it's urgent that Australia implement the Declaration and the International Covenant as part of our federal law to provide a benchmark against which the validity of government legislation and practices can be assessed, importantly, 
that they could be assessed by our courts and uh, found wanting where, where appropriate. I believe Parliament has passed these excessive laws in a way that fundamentally breaches uh, the rights uh, and obligations under international law and I believe also under common law. We need to stand up to challenge governments that make laws without Indigenous consultation and which have a racially discriminatory impact, as this intervention does. And so I strongly support the statement um, initiated through um, Alastair and others. Um, it's an important uh, statement by many people putting their names to it. Uh, I think we need to have a national uh, uh, discussion to bring an end to this disgraceful legislation and that we attempt to deal with, with the problems in our communities generally uh, and with ind Indigenous communities in particular in ways that are much more humane and which are based on evidence, not on, on um, uh, emotive uh, and false premises. So thank you all very much and uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak to you. The Independent and Peaceful Australia Network presents War, Peace and Independence, Keep Australia Out of US Wars. Amidst an escalating threat of another major war breaking out, this timely conference will be held in Melbourne from the 8th to the 10th of September. The conference will address the struggle against US bases, drone warfare, peace as union business, US political and military influence and much more. For details and bookings, head to ipan.org.au or go to the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network's Facebook page, a 3CR supporter. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and we're at the launch of uh, the Eminent Australians' statement against the Northern Territory intervention. They're calling for an end of it. And uh, the uh, one of the people that was uh, there, Gillian Trigg, did the opening speech. But uh, before we uh, go, we should actually hear from a First Nations per person. There were three First Nations, no, four First Nations speakers. Uh, the one that we're going to highlight this morning, because we've only got a certain limited amount of time, is Rosalie Kuno-Monks. I can think of no one more impressive in my lifetime who has tried to end the great Australian silence than our next speaker, Rosalie Cuneth Monks. Please welcome the Eastern Arundel Elder, Rosalie Cuneth Monks. It is beautiful to see, to see the support. I'm going to translate my own words. Aboriginal language is alive and well in this country. And it's beautiful to see you people here supporting a struggle for survival, a struggle for our culture. I also acknowledge the people of this land that have been all but destroyed. People that lived yesterday, people that live now, and people that will be here in the future. 
the black people of Victoria. In saying our language and saying our words and communicating with you in the first languages of this country is only going to bring us closer together. And I hope that you take note that this is what we are trying to say. It's not just cult policies that's hurting us. It's been an absolute outright assault, abusive assault, done with impunity in Australia. That's what my brother, Dr. Gondar, is talking about. How long are we, collectively, as Australians, going to tolerate just from a few, this abuse on certain section of our community. I speak your language. I went and, oh not I, but my father and mother put me into a hostel, St Mary's, in Alice Springs, to access outside knowledge because I wasn't brought up and I'm still a bit angry I wasn't brought up in the English language if my gender language I grew up with my language in the tribal lands of Utopia, northeast of Alice Springs I'm still there for God's sakes I'm 20 years of being a hundred Am I going to see any improvement? Am I going to see some action against the disgusting, disgusting control of certain sections of the Australian community? Am I? Am I going to see a young woman such as my beautiful granddaughter, Amelia, have that self-respect. She has it all right, but to have that freedom and to feel she belongs to this country and not forever be looking over her shoulder with anger at the policies that are created on a free people of this country. We have never ceded our country. We've never given an inch of it away. It's been taken. And being the noble people that we are, we even welcomed our brothers and sisters from overseas. We welcomed them. Whilst they kicked us, whilst they raped our children, created people with mixed ethnic backgrounds and then said those half-castes are a danger. You can even see our Lang, Mr Lang, Gina's father, saying the best way to get rid of them is to sterilise them. 
It's in John Bilge's film saying that. He's saying it. So it's not a make-believe or a dramatization of the filthy history of Australia and its government. It not, it not, it should not be of the Australian people. I'm talking about the policies. I'm talking about those you elect, those you work for for the rest of your life to pay tax, for them to play around and almost commit <coughs> unmentionable crime in your name, not only to the First Nations people, but to other human beings as well. We've got to get serious and we've got to do it together. I will not give up my allodial rights. This is and always will be my country. And I will not lose one word so I can become a professor or whatever in another culture that seeks to destroy my identity, to destroy me as a person, no way. I will die a painful death before I accept that. I will access knowledge, not only within Australia, but maybe the Spanish, maybe the Mexicans, which Donald Trump hates anyway. <laughs> and and maybe the Asian languages. As a free human being, I should be able to do that. What is happening to Australia? What is happening to our freedom? A freedom that was so considerate of others. I don't think we're getting too far at the moment. If I can sit there shouldn't say it, <laughs> and watch Andrew Bolt go off his head <laughs> senselessly. What am I abusing myself with? And yet, I've got to watch how people are thinking right now. To sit here tonight, to hear this beautiful lady sitting in front of me, Give us the inside. I watched her abuse on television. To watch this wonderful man here, Alistair Nicholson. To watch this beautiful man here, my brother. And to watch Jeff McMullen, who has been by my side and who has fought with me. Anything that looked as though it was going to overpower us. With consistency, it's a wonderful thing. John right at the end there, shared platforms with him, and I've watched him. There are also others. Jerry Georgiades, in the front of children, fighting in the front 
of the children taking their lives over in Western Australia. Better believe it. Not a joke when kids hang themselves. What are we doing? We make nice little noises. We entertain each other. We hang out our suffering. Time and time again. Watch my pain. Is it entertaining enough? I don't want that anymore. I want action from all of us against a brutal, brutal assault for no reason at all. Yes, I was there the day the army arrived, ten years ago. I was there when they arrived, backed up by the police, the Northern Territory Police, backed up by the public servants too, in the Northern Territory. I was the president of the community council, or up and or up at your council. I was there when they put the big signs up saying, beware, like we were beastly creatures living beyond that grid, going into our sacred lands, our home. And it was a great, spectacular thing. I watched Mal Bruff as he appeared time and time again. I had, ever since that time, that pain has doubled because nothing is changing. I've watched my children being taken. My own brother's children were taken and six months later, Reddit Dixon Holmes, because my children Nephews and that, they're fair, fair-skinned. They were told, those kids, that their mother and father had died. Dennis is almost 60 now. They were told that their mother and father was killed and they had a good opportunity of being given to white people to bring up. Permanent fostering or adoption because that would be better for them, because they had fair skin. And Dennis almost 60 now. He's hurting, he's one hell of an angry person. <laughs> I wonder why. I wonder why. So this is what we're facing, and I don't think, brothers and sisters, we should take it anymore. We should speak up wherever we can I don't want to try and reason with them. I've been trying to reason with them for years and years. I'm not talking about people of Australia. I am talking about government. And look at them now. They can't even run a government. <laughs> Dual citizenship. <laughs> they better make up their mind where the hell they come from. <laughs> if 
there was an Aboriginal person in there, you would not have any doubt. <laughs> <laughs>
and hear the voices and stories of people currently experiencing homelessness in Melbourne. A weak solidarity, Bricky Team Lister, when I'm prepared to open by making a bet with you. I'll bet after what I'm about to say, you'll curl into embryonic form, pull the blankets over your head and contemplate whether to come up for air all weekend. Here goes. At this moment, at this very moment, Barnacle, think of that, Barnacle is the big supremo of this country. <laughs> there you go, told you, blankets up, cocooned in a little could things get worse world, a muffled go back to where you came from, from under the blankets, on which the possibility we have a big supremo who is ineligible to have his bum on the plush seats, let alone be big supremo, surprise, surprise. In the past week, the government has announced a spate of infrastructure spending in Barnacle's own electorate, including three new road projects. Surely this doesn't mean they think there might be a by-election in New England shortly, does it? No, no, just their turn, like the turn of all that massive infrastructure spending in Barnacle's electorate just before the last election. Pig meat with crackling in barrels on every farm. Uh, that could things get worse exclamation, hard as, it is, hard as it is to contemplate anything worse, just maybe they could. It's time to make a list of those evil, evil countries who cannot be allowed to have nuclear weapons. Evil, warmongering nuclear weapons and weapons of mass destruction. And good, good countries who must have good, peace-loving nuclear weapons and weapons of mass destruction. Good nuclear weapons and bad nuclear weapons. The peace-loving list forced to use its peace-loving weapons on the warmongering list to ensure world peace after a little hiatus of world non-peace, known traditionally as war-trained killing. A little bit of war-trained killing to ensure a whole lot of peace. Notice there's an asterisk attached there. Let's check down the bottom here. Asterisk. Oh, whole lot of peace if the world still exists. But then great military thinkers and great leaders like the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, Big Supremo and Commander-in-Chief Donald Trample the Poor, argue logically and philosophically that even if the world, well, the planet, no longer exists as in being capable of maintaining human life, it will be a peaceful non-exist. The alternative to not exist, if evil warmongers are allowed to threaten world peace, is too awful to contemplate. Terrible, terrible, very bad, very bad. And don't forget, the US OB has a whole, whole lot of experience in the keeping the peace to a little bit of non-peace business. It's never not doing it, great responsible world citizen that it is. And if True Blue Aussie followed, well, not if, when True Blue Aussie takes its orders and follows the US of into maintaining peace, we suppose our big supremo, Malcolm Tunn of Bull, egged on by former big supremo, tiny a bit more for the bosses et al., including today's big supremo, Barnacle, will hold a postal ballot, or sorry, a postal survey, to give the True Blue Aussie people a say. But other government giant mind of giant minds, Minister for Concentration Camps, Raise a Wire and Sink the Boats, Peter Duffer, said he was frustrated and angry at that out-of-court settlement of a damages claim by Manus Island prisoners. Sorry, no proper papers, queue-jumping illegal boat people, Pete is preventing from drowning. But, he added, 
all of the legal advice I got meant we were left with no other alternative. Now, in case the implications of that have bypassed Pete's mind, Pete, it means the plaintiffs had a strong case. And you didn't. Well, we didn't, seeing it's our money he's playing with, about 90 mil of our hard-earned down the gurgler. Still, that and the multi-million costs of running Pete's concentration camps is far more efficient and sensible than letting these people live and work here, be, dare we say it, be members of our society. There's some, of course, we wish weren't members of, not those people, but see, we know the government knows it is blameless and everything bad is down to the opposition. And the opposition knows it is blameless and everything bad is down to the government. Well, the big example of this truism this week, bringing us to the some we wish weren't members of, from the Minister for Train Killers, Train Killer Merchandise, Christopher Payne in there, over an election redistribution that will cost South Troop Blue Aussie a seat, quite possibly his. The sole reason South True Blue Aussie was losing a seat, Christopher spat petulantly, was because of the bloody Socialist Party, the depths of their Machiavellian scheming, a get Christopher plot. If it is his seat, poor Christopher will have to plot himself to get someone else's. After all, he knows he's irreplaceable. As irreplaceable as the daily protection of our values and information we need to know from the US OBS Lord Rupert of Wapping and top marks to Lord Rupert for expressing concern through his Wapping sin, a, a US OB person in a True Blue Aussie News Lord Rupert wants us to read paper expressing concern for the poor old Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country taxpayers, devoting a whole front page and a double picky spread inside the other morning to the poor old British taxpayer being hit with yet another dole bludger mouth to feed and support for its lifetime in the luxury to which its family is accustomed. This in a week when the same respectable Lord Rupert Outlet informed us the eldest of the young world's highest paid dole bludgers would hit the same taxpayers with a 50000 plus a year primary school bill. Wait till he gets into higher education. But fair enough, it's not your average common public school the taxpayers send their kids to, or to which, as they'll learn in their grammar lessons. Oh, and we can join Lord Rupert's excitement in speculating what the new little doll budger's name might be. We could spend hours having fun with that one. You won't believe it, but other less prestigious newspapers wasted their front pages on unimportant, insignificant issues like a potential world war. But then how can World War Three compete with Kate and Wills announced they were expecting a third bundle of joy, insignificance of moment. Then next day, an even bigger scoop if that be possible. The bloody pejorative Dan government has withdrawn millions of corporate welfare from the loonies. Now, that's not right. Uh, oh, oh, Logies, Logies. And, of course, Channel X Lord, Lord Kerry of Waterhouse and the Crook Casino and other corporate beneficiaries of the Logies couldn't possibly be expected to meet the costs of promoting themselves. And Bert Newton, whose deeply considered views we must and do always respect, said it was worse than, or at least the equivalent of, losing the Melbourne Cup or the Grand Final. Till then, I hadn't realised it was 
was quite so serious. And Steve Vizard said the disaster had the fingerprints of political interference all over it. And I thought, perhaps a slightly unfortunate term, one would think a convicted corporate crook should consider skirting around the term fingerprints. Also mentioned last week, Lord Rupert's mass coverage of the Texan hurricane and its human and financial cost, while giving an in-brief to more than a thousand dead in tragic monsoon floods across India, Bangladesh and Nepal. Well, Thursday, Lord Rupert had a comprehensive coverage of this week's uh, hurricane, Hurricane Irma, heading toward US of terra firma. And that was the story. Florida buttressing itself for the onslaught, no mention of the disaster occurring across Caribbean islands. Well, again, real people are real news. Non-real people, those who don't matter in the corporate scheme of things, are in brief at best. Although the Caribbean victims didn't even warrant an in brief, India, Bangladesh and Nepal should be thankful. Donald Trample the poor, who just loves the biggest ever, best ever, especially describing his own popularity, even worst ever, is the best in a way, said, truthfully for once, that Irma was the biggest hurricane ever. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, for at least a century, and used it to attack the warmest who still believe in climate change based on nothing more reliable than science. If the warmest, bad, very bad, had their way, we could not boost, boast the biggest ever hurricane. Disgraceful, disgraceful. Now, just when we thought the answer to this lingering problem, those who know about these things keep telling us, of slow wages growth was pretty simple. Simply increase wages, more problems. Just when record profits indicate maybe workers could receive a little more, the sundry chambers of profits have been forced to announce soaring electricity prices mean poor, caring employers won't be able to pay workers a little bit more. There's always something, isn't there? Poor Innes Welloff, one of our favourites, supremo of the Trublawazi Industry Profits Group, said higher bills for the great corporates and higher bills for workers' households preventing them from spending on retail was a double-edged reason for workers not being paid a little more. Although finally, Innes knows it's worse than that. The law, the fair work, Trublawazi, no longer work choices, just looks like it, is far too slanted toward evil unions and lazy, avaricious workers. We must change the law to give caring employers a bit of fairness, presumably so they can pay workers a little more. The reason they can't seems to be the evil unions themselves. Minor changes like getting rid of that crippling clause that no worker can be worse off under an agreement. What an attack on caring employers that is. The unions, in a said, direct quote, no embellishment needed, want to create a future that would be utopian for them, but dystopian for the community as a whole. It's frightening, isn't it? Dystopia. But we did say Barnacle's Big Supremo this morning. Good morning. Here I am in the 
the news chopper, I can see Luna Park and the beach. There are painters exhibiting, musicians playing, dancers dancing, photographers, performing artists and every kind of art you can imagine. Get your family and friends together and come and experience being surrounded by art. So check the maps and all the venues in action at www.stkildaartcrawl.com. And do not miss this, guys. Check it out on www.stkildaartcrawl.com. It's all happening on September 21, 22, 23 and 24. A 3CR supporter. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie on 3CR, your radical radio or your activist radio. And uh, on Saturday mornings, we... uh, have a bit of a feast of politics and today we're actually concentrating on uh, cross-cultural affairs in Australia, mainly uh, as uh, discussed by First Nations people. And uh, the past week has been a good one for learning more about Australia from a first person's point of view. The writer, Bruce Pascoe, has stirred things up with his latest book, Dark Emu, a fascinating read about pre-colonial life and the misinformation that has been spread about the culture that lived on this land mass before Europeans. Just as an aside, did you hear comedian Sean McAuliffe's solution to the issue of statues that depict Captain Cook as the discoverer of Australia? It was pretty hysterical, really. He was saying uh, that... uh, what they should do at the bottom of the statues, instead of knocking them down, that uh, in on the inscription that they should put inverted commas around the word discovered. It really tickled my liter- literate uh, side. Anyway, getting back to Bruce P- Pascoe, uh, he gave us a speech at uh, uh, the town hall in Fitzroy and... Uh, and he had some of the here are some of the things he had to say. But I thought I'd leave in the welcome to country because one, it tells you about his uh, background, but it also is really quite enlightening about uh, 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 people's feelings, Aboriginal people's feelings about country, and uh, people like Bruce Pascoe who uh, illuminate the way for the handshake. The uh, well, as the Concerned Australians motto says, what's their motto? It says, uh, no uh, no reconciliation without respect. Yeah, good, up, good evening, everyone. Eh? Nice to see you all here today. Look, uh, firstly, I want to start off by acknowledging that this evening we are meeting on the lands of my ancestors, the Wurundjeri people, and I want to take this opportunity to pay my respects to my elders, both past and present, elders from all nations, but I want to pay my respects to everyone gathered this evening. But I want to make a special acknowledgement to you, Uncle, over there and your family, and to Brother Boy over the back as another Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander man. So I want to acknowledge the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people joining us this evening. Woman Jekka, welcome. Wurundjeri Bullock, Yemen Kondi Pit. The Wurundjeri people welcome everyone to the land today. Wurundjeri, no, 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 Budumbor War, Kondi Nagnat, Dubbin Big Bullock Boar, Tilikan. The Wurundjeri people want to look after and protect the land as they did long before. Wurundjeri country extends from the inner city of Melbourne. It goes across the mountains of the Great Dividing Range, west to the Werribee River, south to the Mordialic Creek and east to Mount Borbor. And the Wurundjeri people are part of the Kulin Nation and of the Warong language group. Hello, my name is Colin Hunter Jr. or Willert, meaning possum. A name given to me by my grandmother as a young boy. I'm a proud and passionate seven-generation Wurundjeri man and a direct descendant of Bibigin, who is Nalangana, or head of the tribe at time at first settlement. 
And it's through my grandmother, Gunbriar, meaning White Dove, or only Tiny, or Nanashu, as known to us, Mob, that have got Aboriginal culture and heritage in my life today. So for that, I say thanks, Nan. My grandmother was one of the last Aboriginal people born in the early 1920s up at Coronet Mission in Hillsville before she got pushed up to Barham on the river in New South Wales. In Aboriginal culture, a great deal of respect is given to the land, the plants and animals alike. And I've got my beautiful gum leaves down here. I'm going to, where am I going to place them? I'm going to place them up on them back tables that are leaning up there, up the back room there. And if you get an opportunity before you leave tonight, take a nice one and put it in your pocket for the evening, eh? Significance is that it'll keep you safe along country and give you the accesses to the resources while you're on country. While you're on Wurundjeri country, you're welcome to the traditional lands and the waterways of the Wurundjeri people. So woman Jack are welcome. Look, I've been asked to introduce Bruce and to give a little bit of a spiel on Bruce and his, and his bio, so I've got to put my glasses on because I can't see without these things on. But yeah. So I'm just going to go through his, through his CV. Jeez, it's not very big, I'll tell you. Yeah, look... Yeah, Uncle Bruce Pascoe is a, a Ewan and Bonorang man from, and Tasmania man who lives, in, lives on country and he lives deep in the Victorian bush. A prof, prolific writer, Bruce is the author of over 20 books in, in Dark Emu, the winner, of the winner of the Book of the Year and the Indigenous Writers' Prize in the, 19, uh, the 2016 New South Wales Premier's Literacy, Literacy Award. No argument that systems of food, production and land management have been blatantly understated in modern retellings of early Aboriginal history. Bruce has had a varied career as a teacher, a farmer, a fisherman, barman, fencing contractor and a lecturer. He also Aboriginal uh, researcher of Aboriginal languages, an archaeologist, a site worker and an editor. Dark Emu 2014 Makabala Books won the New South Wales Premier's Book of the Year and jointly won the Indigenous Writers Prize in 2016. His book, Frog, is it Frog A. Docks, 2012 um, Mac Books, and he won the Young Adult category in the 2013 Prime Minister's Literary Award. You're not, not here to listen to me talk, so I'm going to pass you over to Bruce and I'm going to introduce you to Bruce, so I welcome you up to the stage, Uncle. Uh, thanks very much for that welcome. Um, I appreciate it, brother. Um, I'd like to acknowledge the land um, and um, all the people uh, from this land and um, those who have stood on this stage behind us, um, Uncle Doug, Jimmy Little, um, you know, some of the great heroes of uh, Aboriginal Victoria uh, did a lot of work in here. And so we're, we're in the presence of those old people. I was talking to a young um, black fellow this morning and we were talking about NAIDOC week, how NAIDOC week used to be a black only event where we would celebrate um, our own land, our own peoples. Uh, and now NAIDOC week is um, spread around uh, the, the whole community. I remember working on NAIDOC week two years ago, I was going out to 3CR um, to do a program there and I was in the taxi and it was all, it was ABC radio um, uh, it's all about NAIDOC week, I couldn't believe it, I got in the cab, I was listening to people talking about NAIDOC week 
I got coming home in the cab, listening to people talking about NAIDOC, I couldn't believe it. It was so intense. And it's an indication that things are changing in the country, that the country is starting to uh, look at the possibilities of the future and also understanding, um, un understanding the past. And that's what I'm going to talk about tonight. The prospect for our country is, is huge. Uh, it is a terrific time to be in Australia. Um, so Malcolm Turnbull was right on one occasion. Because um, that's what he said, and it's true. It is a very exciting time to be an Australian. Because a lot is going to change over the next few years. There'll be enormous change. We've already seen it over the last five years where Redfern now turned up on TV prime time and Australians watched it. I never thought that a program called Redfern now uh, would get a, a willing audience, but it did. We've had um, Brand New Day uh, as a stage play and a film being accepted by the country and Dark Emu um, a book which I wasn't sure that the community would accept has been reprinted 16 times and uh, it'll become a, a kids book uh, for 7 to 12 year olds and it will also become a documentary on TV and all of these things are only possible because the Australian people have shown enthusiasm to revisit their own history and that history is fantastic. We don't have to talk wheat and wool and gold. I was working with a sister girl yesterday in... I was in Cooktown yesterday. You know, how can things go wrong? Um, and, um, you know, we, were, we picked up a book in the, the local museum and it was all about wheat and wool. And we were saying, this is what we learned at school about our country. Wheat is a terrific product. Wool is a terrific product. But it's not the only thing about Australia. And we haven't learnt anything much about what Australia was like before wheat, wool and gold. But here's a few. Um, Lieutenant Gray was rich enough and English enough to be able to decide what he would do with his life. So he became an explorer. Only one problem, he wasn't any good. And he, um, he drowned all his horses. He didn't mean to. It was a mistake, could have happened to anyone. Um, but he, he, he beached, he had whale boats. And he, so he, they're, you know, just a very rocky device, half a dozen horses on them. You land, trying to surf onto the beach. It goes over, crushes the horses. It was a bit of a mess, to tell you the truth. And, um, but that's Lieutenant Gray. He did that sort of stuff all the time. Where was the, the flour? Yep, in the boat with the horses. So it got wet, they were hungry. And so he had to walk back to Perth. Um, the only good thing about it was that he was a writer. He had an education, and he, so he wrote everything down. He described the country he was walking through, and he came across a, a large... A wooden structure. It was a house. It had been built by Aboriginal people because he was the first European in that country, um, give or take the, um, the people who survived the Batavia um, debacle. 
The Batavia uh, was a shipwreck on the Brolis Islands off the west coast of Western Australia. And the, the, there were some psychotic people there and they, were, they wanted to be uh, pirates. They wanted to take over the ship. And uh, so they started systematically to, to kill all the other people. And something like 120 people were killed uh, in that battle between the crew of, of that ship. And some of them, when that was all sorted out, got dumped on the West Australian coast. So when um, uh, Lieutenant Gray starts talking about the, um, these massive yam fields and these massive houses, uh, later historians say, oh yeah, it had to be the crew of the Batavia. But we know it wasn't because this was going on in other states of Australia as well. But these yam fields, uh, Gray describes as being so deeply tilled that he couldn't walk across them. Now, when you read that in an explorer's diary and you read the word tilled, you have to start questioning your own history because we learnt nothing about that at school. Uh, you, 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 you've got this incredibly rich resource and when Lieutenant Gray's journal was published, the only section that was left out was where he talked about Aboriginal people. So it gets published and published and published over the next 200 years without that section. And so I've had some people sort of challenge me um, when I've been talking about uh, Dark Emu and they say, well, we haven't read that in Lieutenant Gray's diary. Well, it's in the original. They just left that out. He saw that, but the people who edited the journal decided that that wasn't something that Australians needed to know, so they left it out. And the reason that those um, paddocks that stretched to the horizon, and there were several of them, um, were so deeply tilled was because they were digging for uh, Dioscoria hastafolia, or yam. And that yam, once again, historians and uh, uh, agriculturalists were trying to prove that it had come from Madagascar because they wanted the source of that uh, production to have come from somewhere else. In fact, it comes from Arnhem Land. Now that we've, we're doing the DNA on botany and things like that, we know that plant comes from Arnhem Land. What's it doing in Western Australia? Because people from Arnhem Land traded it to the people in Western Australia and it, it became a, a subsistence crop of those people a really important part of the diet. And we know that it wasn't the people from the Batavia who introduced that, simply because it comes from Arnhem Land, but also because when, when Europeans tried to replicate this only a couple of years ago, they couldn't do it. Because th this yam um, grows very deep. So the, the Europeans who wanted to make a squillion out of growing this yam, because it's a very tasty vegetable and it's very prolific. So they grew the yam, went like a train, they had all the leaves on the surface, it looked terrific. And so they went, they went through their land with a harvester and came up with nothing. They knew there were yam there, they just couldn't find them. So then they, they got in a chisel plough, which was going that far into the soil, it turned up nothing. And they said, we had this great crop, 
where is it? And so then they brought in an excavator um, and they were digging down a metre and a half and there were the yam, they just came up in bushels pouring out over the, over the land. And that's why the old people had turned that into such a deeply tilled paddock because they were digging down a metre and a half. And I, I had accepted uh, Gray's statement about how he... Um, that this land was deeply tilled, but I didn't question it. Um, and I'm ashamed of myself for not having questioned it. I just accepted the fact that he said it was deeply tilled. And then over in Western Australia earlier this year, one of the old girls there was talking about this yam. And I said, but how come... Um, that ground was so deeply tilled if this thing is so productive. And she said, oh, you know, nothing. So she got out her yamstick and she actually dug down because we had a few in the yard um, over in WA. And there they were, a metre and a half down. So those old people were using a system where they dug across the field progressively over the years. When they reached the far end of the the field, they came back. Um, but they were using a face and they were digging down a metre and a half. This is an incredible devotion of labour. When um, Isaac Beatty uh, came to Melbourne, he was one of the few people who had had actually an agricultural background. The thing that surprised him was that all the hillsides around Melbourne were terraced, and they were terraced in the production of Murnong, which is a... uh, They call it Yam Daisy, uh, Microceros lanceolata. It's only that big as a tuber, but... Aboriginal people had been cultivating this for so long um, and deliberately terracing the hillsides in the process. And the Murnong is seven times as nutritious as a potato. So being only that big, you don't have to eat as much of it. And one of the things that our society is doing around the world these days is eating too much. And so it's not just the nutrition we take in, but it's also the volume. We're asking too much of our bodies. We're consuming energy, breaking down food, whereas these little things are going to be highly nutritious. The sugar that they have in them isn't a sugar at all, it's fructans, so diabetics can eat it. It's going to be one of those plants that everybody grows in Australia. Uh, Most states will be able to grow it in one of the various varieties, and it's going to be very good for us. So why did we ignore the yams in Western Australia, why did we ignore the Murnong that grows so prolifically in Victoria? What was it that made us decide to turn our backs on these Australian plants and import other plants, but also fail to tell our children? Fail to tell our children what Aboriginal people were actually doing. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and we're listening to that very interesting person, Bruce Pascoe, reflecting on his latest book, Dark Emu and Things More Generally. If you want to uh, get a copy of Bruce Pascoe's book, Dark Emu, it only costs $35, as he impishly liked to remind his audience. And when Sir Thomas Mitchell, who was one of the great figures in Australian history, And he must have been a fantastic bloke to know because he could draw, he wrote poetry, he fought the last duel in Victoria, so he had a few stories up his sleeves. Um, And he was a highly intelligent man and, once again, a very good writer, a very good writer. He wrote really well. And Mitchell, when he 
uh, came to Victoria and discovered Australia Felix. Um, that's the Western District, the um, volcanic plains of, of Australia, which were so rich in, um, in, in soil because of that volcanic activity. He saw Murnong growing from where he stood at Garryward, the, Gr the Grampians. It grew past the South Australian border, unbroken. In all that flat land, there were virtually no trees. Someone mentioned to me Bill Gamage's book um, earlier today. I recommend you um, read that. It's an incredible insight into how the country looked prior to occupation. But Mitchell was looking across thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of acres of Murnong. This is the, one of the greatest uh, agricultural uh, sites on earth. Uh, very productive. Um, all the pioneer farmers, um, pioneer is a debatable term, um, all of the uh, explorers who went through that region talk about how women who were walking across those plains and um, sequentially harvesting the Murnong, they were selecting uh, tubers from those Murnong plants, putting them in their basket, and as they walked forward, they'd press the old plant back into the soil. These were perennial plants. They were going to grow again the next year and the next year and the next year. And this was a wonderful agriculture for the soil because perennial plants sequester carbon. And we'll be growing these things and we'll be encouraged to grow them by an adventurous government. Um, we have to just have to find one. Um, because we will want to meet, this country of ours will want to meet its um, carbon emission targets and growing perennial plants rather than annual plants is one of the easiest ways of going about doing that. Uh, it'll be uh, great for our country because it's not just the tubers, it's also the grains. And Sir Thomas Mitchell, once again, prior to coming to Victoria, um, was going through the what was then called the Corners region where the states of uh, Queensland, South Australia, New South Wales met. And um, in that region, <coughs> pardon me, um, Mitchell was coming across villages of a thousand people day after day after day. Not just one village of a thousand people, but spaced out um, over the landscape one after another, a thousand people. And he remarked about the, um, the houses there. He remarked about their beauty, how the whole of the area of the village had been designed so that houses were set back under the boughs of wattles and um, some of the other banksias and melaleucas. So there was an eye to beauty. And um, Mitchell ascribed that eye for beauty to uh, Aboriginal women. Um, you know, perhaps it was the women who created that artistic uh, response to village life. Um, but we also know that it was the women um, who did a lot of the uh, harvesting of vegetables and a lot of the harvesting of grain. And it was certainly the women who turned the grain um, from grain into flour. 
Mitchell rode through nine miles of stooped grain. No Australian child should have an education in Australian history without being exposed to the word stooped because like tilled, it's an old agricultural term and it means a sheaf, a sheaf of grain and he rode through nine miles of it. That's a lot of work for a lot of people and um, Geoffrey Blaney talks about uh, the um, itinerant nature of Aboriginal people and I, I've a mate of mine um, heard him say on radio the other day when he was questioned by Thomas Keneally um, and Thomas said to him so Geoffrey um, how do you explain what the explorers saw about the growing of grain in Queensland, New South Wales, Western Australia, South Australia, Northern Territory and Tasmania and he said well we were wrong and that was a very gracious thing for a man uh, whose life and reputation had been built on his own books of history to say, well, we were wrong and we're going to revisit that. Um, so there has been a bit of pushback. Um, you've been um, in listening and reading um, the debate about the... Uh, the war memorials, the great uh, statues to people and how there's this debate about whether or not they should have some legend on them which talks about uh, prior occupation of the land. Um, and that, that debate will come and go because we, we're not going to convince the unconvinced very quickly. And we shouldn't be harsh with ourselves about not... Um, being able to convince someone like Andrew Bolt, say. And it's not going to happen easily. Stop worrying about it. You know, um, if, if, we, if we obsess ourselves with Donald Trump, um, then we're going, to, we're going to stop actually working creatively in our own communities. If all we can talk about is Donald Trump on Facebook and in the news, we're wasting our time. Because we're, we've got no control over the American electorate, uh, nor should we have, and um, nor should we have control over New Zealand or any of the other places where most of our parliamentarians come from. <laughs> so we, we should focus on what we can control. I remember when um, the, um, the Springbok tour of 1974, someone here probably knows the exact date of that, when Australians were laying down in front of tractors um, to stop the South African Springbok tour of that season and Aboriginal people in that very year were not allowed to walk down the main street of Warrnambool. So we were worrying about what another country was doing about racism and denying what was happening in Warrnambool, one of our own cities. And also... Um, denying uh, a lot of the legislation which had impoverished and stripped Aboriginal people of culture, language and pride. And the, um, the, the really sad part of it was that um, so many of our young people, when stripped of culture, have not been able to lift up their pride and their fathers and mothers and 
uncles and aunties have, have lost so many young people um, to a loss which was not their fault and which we, we really need to redeem. Uh, we need to uh, encourage young Aboriginal people uh, to stay at school, to be proud of their culture and to lift their chins up and to, and to say, like I hope we will say in a few years' time, I come from the country that invented bread. And that's a claim that every Australian can make and make proudly. I, in Dark Emu, um, I talk about the fact that there was a woman at Cuddy Springs who did one of these amazing things um, in the, the world history. She took a handful of grain and looked at it and said to herself, I'm going to grind that and see what happens. And so she invented a flower. And then she looked at the flower and she said, I'm going to wet that and see what happens. So she was a chemist as well as an engineer. She wet the, the flower, it became dough, and being the chemist that she was, she said, I think I'll heat this up. So she put it in the fire and she invented bread. And I thought that was 36,000 years ago. And so being uh, you know, a highly intelligent researcher, I googled bread and um, <laughs> I googled it. That's right, thank you. And I came up with um, a year for the Egyptians of 17,000 years. So in Dark Aim you'll, you'll read, it only costs $35, so to get this information, 10 pots. Anyway, they, um, they had the Egyptians down 17,000 years, so I'm saying Aboriginal people did it 36,000 years, so take 17 from 36 and you come up with... Hey? You haven't got your calculators out, have you? Whatever it is, it's a number. But um, what I got in the email the other day was um, a, a clipping from The Guardian about a new archaeological examination, 65,000 years for a grinding dish. This is a massive, massive increase in the age of this work. Now, I was in conversation with a, um, one of the elder statesmen of Australian Academy and he said, oh yeah, but the Africans were doing that too. Well, I've heard that argument before. Yes, the Af Africans were actually grinding food, but they were grinding vegetables. So they were making a vegetable pulp uh, to which they were adding honey and uh, things like that um, to make a preserved vegetable paste. But they weren't grinding grain. So the people in Australia who were grinding that grain 65,000 years ago were way in advance of um, any other peoples on earth. And uh, we were trying to get hold of that 36,000-year-old dish so that we could examine it. Because uh, Fulliger and Field had examined this old 36,000-year-old dish, not the 65,000-year one, and there were, because it had been used as a mortar and pestle arrangement for so long, there was still flour ground into the 
the base of the stone. So by examining the base of the stone, Fulgrim Field came up with 36,000 years because that was how old that material was because they found this stone by accident because they were looking for dinosaur bones and they found this dish as well. And it remained unexamined for a long time until um, they decided to have a, a go at ageing it and they came up with that figure. To get into that museum, to examine that stone was difficult. You would think that the curators of that museum would be delighted to have Aboriginal people um, examining the stone of their ancestors, but that was sadly not the case. We worked very hard. I had a good mate of mine in Sydney who spent weeks negotiating with the museum, gently, 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 and eventually she got us in to the museum. Um, when I was examining the stone, all the white gloves on and all that sort of stuff, I could hear someone running down the stairs um, up from the next level above, clack, 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 and in she comes. And she says, Uncle, I heard you were here. I heard you were going to look at that stone. She said, I've been working here six years and they told me they didn't have it. Now, what is going on in an institution like that where an Aboriginal woman who is working at a quite a high level is told that the museum doesn't have the stone. And why do you say that? Why do you do it? Anyway, she said, the reason I want to know this, she said, because I come from Cuddy Springs and that is where the stone came from. That is her stone. That's why she was so upset. And when you think about it, like the, that stone could have been used by her great-great-grandmother or if it wasn't her great-great-grandmother her great-great-grandmother knew who used the stone. So this is how intimate, how immediate Australian history is because there's a young woman standing with her fingers three inches from the stone because we're not allowed to touch it because it's still being examined and um, it's immediate to her family. That's all we have time for for this Solidarity Breakfast here on 3CR 855 on your AM dial. We are podcast. We will leave you with a song from Manus Island. Listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.